Wow, after such a wonderful hymn, I'm not sure that I can preach a sermon worthy of that. If you look in the hymnals at who wrote the words to that last hymn, uh, who is it? Who's the person who wrote those words? Not in English, it was translated into English. Any ideas? He's pretty famous. St. Francis of Assisi. Who does the Holy Land belong to anyway? Let me make sure this is on here. No? It is stuck. Well, who does the Holy Land belong to anyway? Um, Anyone who knows anything about the news and what's going on in the world today knows that there is a lot of sadness, a lot of violence, a lot of hatred in the Holy Land. Um, Sharon and I, we lived in the city of Nazareth for five years, so this is not something theoretical for us. We have friends who are Jews and Christians and Muslims. We have friends and brothers and sisters Um, that are from Jewish backgrounds and Arab backgrounds. So these are people that are close to our heart. I have some photos up here in the next slide if we want to go to that one. Uh, So we lived there for five years, and I helped to start a seminary there, which is still up and running. And it was a blessed time, a challenging time. There we go. There's some photos of our kids. My kids are not here right now. They're all in other places, so they can't be too embarrassed. Um, but uh, th- that's some photos of us, you know, carrying out ministry in the Holy Land, doing different things. And as I think about the contradiction that is the Holy Land, that it's a place that is so inspiring for many Christians, and they go there, and they get to see, you know, the Valley of the Kings, and they get to see the tomb of Jesus, and they get to see, you know, Mary's house. Thank you. And they get to see all these wonderful things, and they, they come back to Spain or the United States or Canada or, you know, wherever they're from, encouraged and full of life and energy and inspiration. But then for the Christians who actually live there, it is a, it's a really difficult place to live. In all of Israel and Palestine, all that land right there, it's not very big. It's not larger than Portugal. And uh, it's only about 2% Christian. And when, when I say Christian, I mean all the Christians, Orthodox, Catholics, Protestants. So there are really not many Christians there in the Holy Land anymore. So it's, it's quite a difficult and challenging place to live. And as I was reflecting on the contradiction that is the Holy Land, that it can be so inspiring and full of life, but also such a place of challenge and difficulty, I thought of Psalm 89. Now, Psalm 89 is written by a person we don't know very much about. His name is Ethan the Ezraite. We have one little note about this person in the book of Kings, and it says that he was a wise man, but Solomon was even wiser than he was. So that's kind of the way of saying, yeah, he was really intelligent and wise, but Solomon, a little bit more. And Ethan, so presumably Ethan was there during the reign of Solomon. Maybe he had been really young when David was king. But then as we read the latter part of the psalm, it's pretty clear that Ethan has also seen some great tragedies happening in the Holy Land. 
So I think that Ethan was around after the reign of Solomon. The name of Solomon's son was Rehoboam. But Rehoboam was, a, he was just a bad king. He was a really bad king. And it was during the reign of Rehoboam that the kingdom of Israel divided into two kingdoms, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. So that would make sense. You have broken through all his walls and reduced his strongholds to ruins, that the kingdom has been divided. It is militarily weak. Um, and it, it is the house of David that continues to be uh, reigning in the south, in the kingdom of Judah. But on the other hand, we find that Ethan also has this great memory, that God had formed a kingdom, a, a pact, a covenant with David. Now, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but your Bible is divided into two sections, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, that word testament, that word testament is another word for covenant or alliance or pact. We have several different words. So what, what is a covenant or a testament? We have two definitions here. Merriam-Webster says, a written agreement or promise usually under seal between two or more parties, especially for the performance of some action. And then we have one here that is from the Jewish Encyclopedia, gives us an Old Testament vision of it. An agreement between two contracting parties, originally sealed with blood, a bond or a law, a permanent religious dispensation or, or agreement. The old primitive way of concluding a covenant was to walk between the, like, the two parts of the body of a dead animal. I don't know if you remember, but Abraham, in his dream, that's what he does, right? They have the animals, and they walk through, or Abraham walks through the parts of the animals. It is a really strange way. We don't do this anymore. When we seal covenants, we usually have something notarized and sign a piece of paper, a little, little bit easier for us. And in fact, in Hebrew, you don't form a covenant, you don't make a covenant, you cut a covenant. So this is what Ethan is talking about. You made this covenant with David and it was a good covenant and you were with David, a man after your own heart. But then over the years, he sees things going wrong and he sees the land divided he sees foreign armies coming into the land and defeating different cities and towns, and he is conflicted, as we are conflicted today. Um, in, in the Holy Land, you know, many of the Jews who are religious, there's a lot of Jews who don't believe in anything and who are atheists, but the ones who are religious, they will say, God promised this land to our ancestors. But then if you talk with the Arabs, the, especially the Muslims, they will say, no, Allah, you know, the God of Islam, he gave us this land and we conquered it and it belongs to us forever. So both of them have religious claims. How, how, do you, how do you resolve this? What do you do with this? Who does the land really belong to? Sorry, to whom does the land really belong? In the original notes I sent to Pastor David, uh, I think I, I put the title, who does the land belong to? And he said, how, how, how about if we use whom? And I said, well, if we want to do real proper English, to whom does the land belong? So we, we were very scrupulous about these things. A time of uncertainty. Let's go back to the beginning, Genesis 1. Now, I'm going to give you some homework, okay? I want you guys to take note of all of these different verses and texts that we're looking at. And later on during the week, read through them with more time, okay? 
Genesis 1, this is a uh, chapter that I'm sure that all of you know fairly well. And I just want to ask the question, as we go back to the beginning of the creation of the land, because that's the question we're asking, who does the land, to whom does the land belong? Um, this is where it all begins. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was chaos and waste. Darkness was on the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God, or the wind of God, was hovering upon the surface of the water. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, so God distinguished the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So there was evening, and there was morning, one day. Then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the water. Let it be for separating water from water. So God made the expanse, and it separated the water that was below the expanse from the water that was over the expanse. And it happened so. God called the expanse sky. So there was evening and there was morning, a second day. And it keeps on going like this. What, what do we learn about God? I always like asking this question of my students at the seminary. I teach Old Testament, which is why I have always so many Old Testament references in my sermons. I teach Old Testament at the seminary in Alcobendas. And I say, what do we learn about God from this? God is a character in the book. He's a real character. He really exists. But what do we learn? What kind of God are we talking about? Right? So what do we learn about God when we read Genesis 1? Well, we first, first learn that God is unopposed. Genesis 1 is a really different creation narrative than a lot of the other ancient stories or creation narratives that we have from the other cultures. Because a lot of those cultures and civilizations said, well, you know, the universe came into being because there was a struggle between maybe a good God and a bad God. Or there was a fight between different spiritual powers, and that's where the universe comes from. That's what the Babylonians believed. But here we find that God is completely unopposed in his work in creation, right at the beginning of the Bible. He says, let there be light, and there is light. Let the waters be separated, they are separated. So God here is like a king. He's like an emperor. He commands and it is done. There is no opposition. This, again, this made the faith of the Hebrews different than the other religious faiths that existed um, in those days. The second thing is that like a high priest, God works in an orderly and organized manner. Now I said that most of you probably know Genesis 1 fairly well. Most of you probably do not know Leviticus very well. Um, anyone here ever like preached through Leviticus or been to a church where they preached through Leviticus? Probably not. Anyone do a Bible study on Leviticus with the men's group or the women's group? I, I would really respect that if you did. But Leviticus, what, what's the point of that book? It's the third book in the Torah. Why is it there? Well, Leviticus has the rules for the priests, okay? How to carry out different sacrifices, and it, it will say, you know, first do this, say the blessing, the person bringing the sacrifice will do this thing, you do this. It is all in order. Everything in its right place. It's what we would call the order of worship, if you will, or in some churches, the liturgy. And we find that God, like the high priest, is doing everything at the right time in its right 
place. And then when he is finished, he rests. So all the way from the beginning, from Genesis 1, we already find that God is the king. He says, let it be, and it is. And he is also the priest. He does everything according to the order of worship, correctly and in a beautiful way. And then God rests when his work is done. Now let's take a look at Psalm 2, because we're, we want to keep going with this theme of the king. Psalm 2 is a coronation psalm, we think. What does that mean, coronation? That means when there was a new king, they would read this psalm or use this psalm as part of the ceremony for placing the, the throne on the king's head. And they would probably use it again to remember the king or maybe on the anniversary of his coronation, things like that. Now, the psalms are a little bit tricky because sometimes it's like, a, it's like a, a play for a theater, but you don't have who is saying which part. But this part of Psalm 2, which again, this is part of your homework, read all of Psalm 2. Um, this part of Psalm 2, this is what the new king says, okay? Not all the parts of Psalm 2. Psalm 2 has a part for maybe a, a minister, maybe the court prophet, maybe the high priest. These are the words that the new king says, I will declare the decree of Yahweh, he said to me, you are my son, today I have become your father. Ask me and I will give the nations as your inheritance and the far reaches of the earth as your possession. You shall break the nations with an iron scepter, you shall dash them in pieces like a potter's jar. You are my son. We saw this language in Psalm 89, right? Who is the father of the king. It is God. God has adopted the king on this day of his coronation. Now, that is not a, that's a fancy coronation in Europe. Uh, that is not a Hebrew coronation, but it gives us the idea of the solemnity and, and the importance of what that process and what that ceremony looked like. Now, Jesus... He didn't really go around calling himself the son of God. For the Jews in the first century, if they heard son of God, they would have thought like the Davidic king. That's what they thought at that time. We understand the son of God has a much more profound, deeper, eternal meaning today after the incarnation. But Jesus, what did he call himself? The son of man. Where does this come from? Have you ever thought about this? It's kind of a weird thing to go around calling yourself. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's, it's a strange title. It comes from Daniel 7. I was watching in the night visions. Behold, one like a Son of Man. Coming with the clouds of heavens, he approached the Ancient of Days and was brought into his presence. Dominion, glory, and sovereignty were given to him that all peoples nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will never pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. When Jesus called himself the Son of Man, he was saying, I am much greater than just the Davidic king. The Davidic king, he's there until he dies, and then there's another king. The Davidic king is there. He's got a territory that he's ruling over, and then, you know, someone can come and invade it and take some land. Maybe you can go and invade someone else, but it's a defined small territory. 
but the Son of Man. And this is what Jesus is saying about himself. It's an amazing thing that he would just go around calling himself the Son of Man. It's it's easy to understand why people would be offended, especially people who knew the, uh, the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, really well. Why they would be offended at this claim that I'm the Son of Man. He's saying that he has all these characteristics, that his kingdom is an eternal kingdom, and it's not just over a little chunk of land in the Near East. It's over the entirety of the heavens and the earth. I like this icon. This is called Cristo Pantocrator. If you ever go to an Orthodox church, um, they always have this. This is always the dome that's over the people. And it is Jesus Christ holding the book of life, looking down on the people. This would not work very well in the United States, by the way, because this guy, he looks really severe, solemn, and serious, right? We like, you know, Jesus, my buddy. That's kind of the American thing. But uh, anyway, the coronation of a king. Uh, I've chosen some passages from Matthew to talk about how, how St. Matthew is telling us how Jesus is coronated, how he becomes the king. Now, we think of this as Jesus being crucified, and that's ex- exactly what's happening. But Matthew is saying, you know, behind the scenes, at a deeper level, Jesus Christ, when he is nailed to the cross, he is, in fact, the king who is ascending to his throne. He is ascending to his throne. We find that uh, Jesus is anointed. Now, he's not anointed by the, the high priest or the court prophet like you would hope. He's anointed by a woman who anoints his feet. He is dressed in a robe. That would be another thing that you would do at the coronation of a new king. You would put a new robe on him to show his glory and his majesty and his authority. You would place a crown on his head. Of course, this one is a crown of thorns. The military would recognize his kingship. Do you remember how the soldiers came before Jesus and they mocked him and they kneeled before him? In a regular coronation, you'd have the top generals of the army, the military, come before the king and pledge to defend his kingdom, because if you don't have the military behind you, I will tell you, your reign is not going to last very long. So they're mocking him, but Matthew is saying there's something deeper going on here. And then he ascends to his throne when he is nailed to the cross. It is tragedy that the one good man who was like us in every way but without sin, to continue with Hebrews, he was nailed to a cross. He didn't deserve it. Um, But he's also ascending to his throne. It's beyond comprehension. And then he's proclaimed to the nations as king of the Jews. If you go to the Prado, you'll see these beautiful Baroque and Renaissance paintings, and uh, one of the main themes is the crucifixion. And always nailed to the top of the cross is a piece of paper or a a sign. And it says, INRI, I-N-R-I, INRI. What does that mean? Why, why Why is that on the cross? INRI is the abbreviations for the Latin, Jesus, Nazarenus, Rex, Iadorum. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And I love how the Pharisees and the scribes, they go to Pontius and they say, take that down. We have no king but Caesar, right? And he says, no, I'm just going to leave it there. 
And that is another thing that you would do when you had a new king, is you would announce it to all the surrounding nations, we have a new king. The old king is no longer here. We have a new king. And so if you need to deal with the monarchy here, this is our new king. You would notify all the nations around your kingdom that you have a new king. And Matthew is doing this all very clearly, very intentionally, to let us know, yes, this is the ultimate injustice, the crucifixion of the one good man, Israel's Messiah, the world's Messiah, but it's also the king ascending to his throne. But we also find something interesting in Matthew. With a coronation, you would also have a great meal, either before or after the coronation. You would have a great meal. And uh, we find this. This is Matthew 26. This is not usually the passage that most churches use when they're celebrating the Lord's Supper. Um, But I'm going to stick with Matthew. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Well, this is, this is a little bit different, isn't it? The shedding of blood, the sealing of a covenant, the atonement or the forgiveness of sins. This is not king stuff. What is this? This is priestly stuff. This is priestly stuff. So here we find, just like all the way back in Genesis 1, when God is creating the heavens and the earth, he is the ultimate and sovereign king who says, let it be and it is, but he is also the high priest over all of creation, carrying out the ceremony or the liturgy, the order of worship of creation. We find the same thing here. He is the high priest who offers the one final atoning sacrifice in the covenant of his blood. Remember, we looked at the Jewish encyclopedia, and it says that the covenant, a covenant had to be sealed in in that culture with the shedding of blood. Jesus knows that, and that's what he's saying. This is my blood of the new covenant. The old covenant was between God and Israel. The mediator was Moses. So it's usually called the Mosaic covenant. That's actually the Old Testament. When you look at your Bible, Old Testament, that is the Mosaic covenant. The New Testament, it's this one. It is a covenant between God and the disciples, but not just the disciples, for you and for many. Everyone who will follow that apostolic faith of the disciples, meaning hopefully each and every one of us, right? Um, For the forgiveness of sins. And Jesus is the mediator. Jesus is the mediator of a new and a better covenant. There is one mediator between God and man. Jesus Christ, the man. All of those verses are pointing back to this event. What is the city of the king like? How how many of you all have been to Jerusalem? Anyone here? Okay, a couple of you. So usually when people go on pilgrimage to Jerusalem, they love it. They go to the church of the Holy Sepulcher. They go to Siloam. They go to the garden tomb. and, And they go down to the Valley of Kings. They go to Gethsemane to see the old olive trees there. And... And it's very edifying and encouraging. I spent a lot of time in Jerusalem doing other stuff for for work and for ministry. And I'll tell you, it's a very tense city. And there's a lot of hatred and rivalry in that city when you get to know it. 
Back in Psalm 87, though, we already have a vision of what that city is like. We know what the Holy Land is like today. We see it torn apart, torn apart, people killing each other. And no no end in sight, by the way. I, I don't see any political solution for what's going on in the Holy Land right now. But here in Psalm 87, we have a vision. Look at verse 5. And of Zion, it will be said, this one and that one were born in her, and the Most High himself shall establish her. The Lord will record when he registers the peoples, this one was born there. Who are these people? Look at verse 4. I will make mention of Rahab and Babylon to those who know me. Behold, O Philistia and Tyre with Ethiopia, this one was born there. We already have this vision that all the peoples of the earth, all the nations of the earth, remember Psalm 2, ask and I will give you the nations for your inheritance, that they will come together and they will be there And God will say, well, I know this person was technically born in Ethiopia, but this one is a son of Zion. I know that she was born in Egypt, but she is a daughter of Zion. She belongs to me. She belongs to my people. All the way back in the Old Testament, we already have this vision. Well, how does the story end? How how does the story end? I like sermons that have something from Genesis and something from Revelation. What is the ultimate vision? Do you remember what Jesus said to his disciples after the resurrection and right before the Great Commission? Everyone knows the Great Commission, right? Go make disciples of all the nations. What does he say right before that? Someone can actually say it out loud. I'm not going to, there's no rule. What does he say right before that? It's kind of the preamble. It's kind of because this happened, you guys have to do this. All authority in heaven and earth is given to me. Therefore, great commission. Yeah. He's got all the authority. He is already king over not just that piece of land that we call the Holy Land. He is the king over Gaza and Israel and the West Bank. He's also the king over all of heaven and earth. For the ancient Israelites, for the Hebrews, they saw the temple as the place where heaven and earth met, where heaven and earth met each other. That's why Jesus can say, destroy the temple and I will build it again in three days. And I love the commentary is, well, they didn't know what he was talking about at the time, but later on they understood that he was talking about his body. What's the meeting place of heaven and earth? The body of Christ, his flesh and blood. And then in Revelation, we have a vision. We have a vision of what the end of the story looks like, because we don't know when the end of the story is going to come. But we know that this is already true. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. We saw that all the way back in Psalm 87. All these different people coming to the city of God, coming to the temple of God, and God says, well, I know you're not born here, but I'm going to adopt you. I'm going to give you citizenship here. 
On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. What does the future look like? What does the city of our king look like? Well, a city had to have walls, because if you didn't have walls historically, somebody could come and, you know, take everything that you had. So if you didn't have walls, you could never have wealth, you could never have anything really valuable there, because it would be at risk. So the city has walls, it's a strong city, and it has gates. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will, will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. That's the end of the story. We live in the in-between period, don't we? We see what's going on right now, and when people ask me, how can I pray for the Holy Land, for the Arabs and the Jews, for the Muslims, the Christians, and the Jews, again, some of whom are very atheistic, agnostic, some of whom are very religious, how can I pray for these people? What is the political solution? What should the UN do? What should the United States do? What should the EU do? I mean, obviously, follow Paul's instruction and pray for wisdom for the governors of the earth. That's... That's a good thing to, that we should do. We should probably do that more often. My solution, the best suggestion that I have, is that these people need to recognize that Jesus Christ is their king. All of them. All of them. If they knew, if they would confess, then I tell you the truth, it wouldn't matter if there's one state or two states or 18 states over in the Holy Land. You don't need a political solution for this problem because you can't have a political solution because the problem is too deep. It is a problem that goes to the heart of the human being. I love a verse from Ecclesiastes. The, the preacher notes, I saw that God made man upright, but man has gone in search of many schemes. We got a wonderful creation from God Almighty, the emperor, the high priest. We're the ones who make all the problems. In the beginning, God created his king and priest. Jesus Christ functioned as both king and priest. We saw that in Matthew. He said, this is my blood of the new covenant. He sealed the new covenant for the forgiveness of sins. If any time you're worried about that, you're like, I've done things that are so bad, God, I don't know if God can really forgive me. The blood of the new covenant has been shed by your high priest. And he is an eternal priest, Another message from Hebrews. Not like the other high priest that would be there for a couple of years and then retire. The blood of the covenant. The city of God exists for the blessings of all the nations and peoples. This is the vision of the city of our king, Jesus Christ. We represent our king when we act with justice and boldness and when we invite people to live under his generous rule. You want peace in the Holy Land? Pray for the salvation of the people who are there. Support the local Christians who are there. If you know any missionaries or ministries reaching out to people in the Holy Land, support those. Do whatever you can, whether it's through prayer or finance or if you're able to go there. I mean, probably not right now, but uh, we, we were there for, for years. We remember and announce our high priest when we participate in the Lord's Supper. And we offer mercy to others as we have received it. The eternal city of God descends from heaven at the end of the age. And finally, 
all of the heavens and earth are right now under the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's hard for us to know why do we have to wait, what's going on, why are you allowing these things to happen. We are like Ethan, aren't we? We have these great memories. I love the first part that we read. It's this wonderful, you know, God made a covenant with David and he supported him and David was good and God was good and the people were blessed. But then later on in the same psalm, he says, what? Have you forgotten your covenant, God? Your, your anointed one, that's the, the king, the descended king of David, he's, he's a laughingstock. He's, he's completely, um, uh, you know, he's been destroyed. Uh, he's been defeated by his enemies. We, we understand that tension. But brothers and sisters, let's remember what the end of the story looks like. The city of God, the city of our king, the gates never close. It is a blessing to all the peoples of the earth, to the Jews, to the Arabs, to the Egyptians, to the Saudis, to the Jordanians, to the Lebanese, to the people from the furthest extents of the world. We are those people. Let's represent our king. Let's represent our high priest. Amen.